It's 13 years after the July 2009 uprising that has led to a violent insurgency in northeast Nigeria and the neighboring countries of Chad, Niger, and Cameroon. Since then, the situation has snowballed into one of the most severe humanitarian crises in the world. Millions of people have been affected in diverse ways, and there are currently 11 million people in need of humanitarian assistance. The International Organization for Migration reports that, as of June 30th this year, Cameroon, Chad, Niger and Nigeria were hosting over 5.5 million internally displaced persons, refugees, returnees and third country nationals. 75% of the affected population were located in Nigeria, the epicenter of the insurgency. The protracted crisis has also resulted in multiple and continued displacement and donor fatigue, which is contributing to deteriorating living conditions for displaced people. Hello, welcome to The Crisis Room, a podcast from Human Angle. I am Mary Mustafa. In this podcast, we look at crisis trends across the country and answer the tough questions around them. This week, I'm here with my colleagues Murtala Abdullahi, Awashafi Nuhu, and Kunle Adebajo. Hello, Mariam. Today, we'll look at the displacement and humanitarian crisis in Northeast Nigeria and the lecture caused by the 13-year conflict in the region. According to the United Nations Development Program, the conflict is responsible for about 350,000 deaths with 314,000 of those caused by indirect factors. We'll also hear from our guests on their coverage of these issues and the plight of the people affected the most and often forgotten as the world drags on and the world shifts its attention to other issues. Millions don't have the option of moving on. That is the case for the people forced to flee to Difa in Niger, the far north of Cameroon or Abuja, Nigeria's capital, to seek refuge. The same can be said of people with missing loved ones. I mean, the uncertainty and lack of closure on their status still haunts them. Sometimes they also have to endure multiple tragedies at the same time, including the impact of fires during the dry season and also destroyed shelters during raining season. It's quite a difficult and traumatic experience for these victims. As you mentioned, sometimes they have to endure more than one tragedy at a time. Just like the story of a displaced family with a girl who has never seen her dad and a young mother who cannot bear to live with another man. Beyond this complex emergency, the insurgency's impact on public infrastructure has also been huge. For example, in Borno, an official assessment in 2016 showed that Boko Haram has destroyed at least 1 million homes and over 5,000 school buildings. To share more insights on the current situation are Kuli and Hawa. Welcome back to the Crisis Room, guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks. It's great to be here again. So the first question is for you, Hawa. You recently visited Meduguria. So can you tell us your assessment of the situation on ground? Um, Things have mostly remained the same, I think, except that this particular trip took me to Bama in Brno State and I got to see a new set of challenges that people that displaced persons in IDP camps there face that are just you know different from what I have seen in camps in Maiduguri. 
For example, they have a water scarcity problem. And from the conversations I had with a lot of them, it's not something that just started overnight. It's not something that starts and then leaves. It's something that has been there for as long as the camp itself has been in existence. And it's a very, very large camp. And so there are several water points. And then you find that there are perhaps up to 100 people on a queue on each water point. There are people who told me that they have had to leave their cakes on the queue overnight because it just had not gotten to their turn yet. So that was really jarring. I did not realize that water could be that difficult to access even for displaced people, even knowing how Nigeria treats displaced people. So, um, and another aspect that um, was really different that I saw was how um, someone that I had interviewed before in Maiduguri, I think I interviewed her about three months ago and she was very well. We had great conversation and I took pictures of her. And then I went back this time and she had developed a mental illness. She had sort of completely lost her mind. So, and they were trying to, you know, rally some sort of help for her so that they could get her admitted at a psychiatric hospital. So that was really also jarring. Um, and it's just um, reinforced my belief that we really by we, I mean Nigerians, really do not take mental health very seriously. And for people who are displaced, including children, they've had to endure and witness a lot of unimaginable and unspeakable horrors. And so these are people who even need it the most. But I haven't really seen any um, strong or mainstream initiatives that are targeted at displaced persons and how their mental health can be sustained or how they can be helped to heal from a lot of these things that they have had to go through. So really, it's just um, lack of mental health support and there has been an intense uh, widespread water scarcity in Bama IDP camp. Well, uh, it's quite tragic uh, when you consider the fact that uh, the situation, whether in terms of water availability, mental health support for the displaced people, it's absent and even worse uh, when compared to those of uh, other people. Uh, and considering also the Dunglin funding for the humanitarian community in Northeast Nigeria, uh, it means that things will continue to deteriorate, uh, sadly. Kuli, would you say your assessment is similar to Hawa's? What else did you notice as you moved through the city, especially the camps? Thanks for the question, Miriam. I agree completely with Hawa's assessment. Uh, something else you notice is that some of the routes that we passed when we visited my degree uh, that used to have IDP camps are now less busy because of the closure of those camps. Uh, for example, I used to pass by Teacher's Village Camp while going to the Muna Garage Camp in Jerelo Government Area. But now it's been completely shut and the places are silent as a graveyard. Uh, same thing applies for Bakasi Camp, which... I'd gone to a couple of times to also talk to displaced people there that has also been shut down by the government. And uh, the problem is the, the camps are not just getting shot. Even those who are around are also complaining of the fact that humanitarian aid is not being supplied to them as it used to. So it becomes difficult for them to survive considering the general economic situation in the country and the fact that they are having uh, fewer and fewer resources to, you know, uh, fend for themselves. We've done quite a number of reports, particularly for 
Gubio camp, you know, and what we notice there is that there is increased starvation. We've seen instances of people, I mean, increased number of deaths, people bearing uh, their loved ones because of mysterious circumstances that they've uh, associated with the lack of food, the malnutrition and so on, and also poor healthcare. So you find that people are risking their lives because there's no money. They are not getting allowances from humanitarian organizations as they used to. The government is not providing food stuff as they used to. and But they have to survive. So the, the people risk their lives to go to the forest areas to get firewood and sell so they can cook and so that they can make money to also buy more food, food ingredients. People are sewing camps. People are going to parties to get lef- leftover food. Uh, people are going to house to do their chores and going to farms to do manual labor. People are prostituting themselves, engaging in survival sex to get money. And you also find people com- uh, engaging in arms arms begging on the streets, even though the government has officially prohibited this from taking place. So it's, it's a terrible set of circumstances. Mm. I have one last question, Kunli. What are your thoughts on the relocation? Thanks. So earlier this year, I uh, visited some of the resettlement sites to talk to IDPs that were relocated uh, under the new policy introduced by the state government. And what I noticed, number one, the terror groups have attacked some of these places, uh, not just the ones I visited, even others. Uh, and you find even though they target soldiers and military personnel, there are times when there are also civilian casualties. So it's because of this, some of them have returned to the um, Maiduguri Metropolis. So it's it's increasing the lack of safety for IDPs. And then there's also the case of lack of food food supplies. The government sometimes would promise to give them some money to aid the relocation, but would not fulfill this promise. Or sometimes they spend most of that money just transporting their materials to the new site. And it's not enough for them to set up to maybe invest in business, to get other sources of income and all that. And so there is also starvation. Some of them are old people that do not have caregivers. And it's also worsening their own situation as well. There's also the fact that by relocating them, it's given the terrorist organizations more hands to potentially recruit into their rank and file. There are people who have returned to the bush because of the fact that they, they assume... Or they think that by being in the territory that's controlled by Boko Haram, they would have access to more food supplies. And so out of desperation, they, they join them. Sometimes they forcefully recruit the men as well. I also have the fact that there's poor facilities available in these places. Even though sometimes the houses are quite impressive compared to what is available at the IDP camps, they are not enough to cater to the population of the people that have been resettled. And like Hawa said, in some of these places, not just Bama, there's also the problem of water scarcity. Uh, so people travel long distances just to get um, access to water and all that. And the fact that because they're not in their original ancestral communities, they still do not have access to farmlands. And so the problem persists. You cannot say you want them to be self-reliant if they do not have access to resources that, will, that they can convert into money. And what what I've heard a lot of people say, the government and even humanitarian actors, is that eh, the IDPs are being over reliant on aid, and and they are being 
greedy. That this the humanitarian intervention is is encouraging greed and dependency. But the fact is, and from what from my various interactions is that IDPs will tell you they are one hundred and one percent willing to return to their homes as far as they can guarantee that they will be safe. Because what they want is just give us land, give us homes. We will take care of ourselves. We don't need aid. But these things are not available at this point because the insecurity is still a, a very worrisome uh, reality that we all have to grapple with. So that's that's what I have to say on that. Uh, thank you very much. And you actually mentioned something that is very important in terms of the transition from... Uh, from displaced camps back home, uh, how do you ensure that it's done in a manner that it's safe and that people have access to livelihood? And considering the condition, the fact that we have a crisis or a conflict that has continued to persist, uh, which means that these locations are not safe. In fact, there is secondary displacement. Uh, you earlier mentioned that some people don't even get to go back to their original homes. Uh, they get sent to another location, which means that you have secondary displacement, you have issues around lack of agricultural resources because people cannot go beyond the trenches that protect uh, either the resettled communities or the host communities that they live in. So it's kind of a dilemma based on what I'm understanding in this conversation. And so uh, there needs to be a lot of balancing to ensure that things are done correctly and in a manner that does not jeopardize the safety of the people. Thank you all so much for a very eye-opening and insightful session. Thank you for joining us, Kuli and Hawa. This is an episode of Human Angle Crisis Room. Thank you for listening. I am Maryam Mustafa. Join in next week for another episode. Members of our production team are Murtala Abdullahi and Anthony Asemuta. The executive producer is Ahmad Salkida.